Hello, I'm Derek Doak, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investment Insights Podcast. For over 25 years, I've been serving the investment property industry, from preparing tax returns for property owners when I worked in public accounting, to creating multi-million dollar syndications as a commercial broker. Throughout my career, I've always had a passion for learning and teaching what I've learned to others. This podcast is for fellow brokers, agents, investors, and real estate syndicators wanting to learn from those that have done it. My goal is to bring value to you through the sharing of best practices and industry knowledge. Each episode is geared towards providing knowledge and insights on industry topics and trends. Please enjoy this episode, and if I can be of any assistance, please reach out to me at Derek at DokeMail.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Real Estate Investments Insights. I'm your host, Derek Doak. And today I have a longtime friend and I think one of the premier um, reposition and developers from an office perspective here in the Northwest, uh, Bill Pollard with me. And Bill and I go way back from a building that we actually leased some space in that he repositioned and redeveloped in uh, Caroline over at Yarrow Point, which, uh, by the way, I can give them thumbs up for their management. They do an incredible job managing. Uh, So if you're ever looking at one of their properties to go into from a tenant perspective, um, I'd give it two thumbs up from our experience as being tenants. So, Bill, what I want to talk about today is first, I want to have you introduce yourself and, uh, you know, Talent Private Capital and kind of talk about the office, you know, the supply side of things, the demand side of things, and uh, and then, you know, break it up between the east side and then also Seattle. I mean, we feel like we're in a little bubble here, but with interest rates rising, um, you know, all the things that are going on in the world, um, you know, I think just kind of hearing from your perspective and what you're hearing out there as it relates to office product and supply would be great. So if you don't mind, Bill, just give a little introduction to yourself and then just kind of launch into the monologue of uh, what's going on in office. Thanks, Derek. appreciate it. Great great to chat with you. Uh, We've gone back a long time, so this is always always enjoyable to catch up with you. Um, Yeah, the office market is interesting right now. Obviously, in, and, and we really should probably talk about Seattle and, and the East Side somewhat separately. It's kind of amazing how they're, they're fairly distinct markets um, and the supply and demand characteristics of are, are fairly different. So let's start in Seattle. Um, you know, Seattle was riding high and flying high um, pre-COVID. Um, it had really a, a good balance of supply and demand. Every time buildings were being built, they were being absorbed. Um, and despite the fact that land prices were going up, the construction costs were going up, um, the rents were going up, demand kept keeping up with that and, and leasing these buildings. And again, you know, if you look at it, a great deal of that was coming from the four or five largest technology companies um, of Amazon and Microsoft and, and Apple and Facebook, et cetera. Um, but but it, Google as well. But it was um, it was also fairly broad beyond those companies. And you were seeing a lot of younger tech companies. You were seeing a lot of financial service companies that were becoming much more tech-centric and they were growing um, with technology platforms. So it was really, you know, for a moment in time, it was very kind of uh, synergistic and positive. Um, Going into COVID, 
obviously that changed. Now, interestingly, at the same time, as you recall, Seattle was going through some fairly significant social governance issues. Um, you know, we had uh, we had a, a mayor and a city council that had some fairly strong beliefs about um, uh, how to address homelessness or not address homelessness or how to deal with homelessness. Um, crime levels had been increasing. The, the buildings were empty because of COVID, which meant the, meant the retailers in Seattle were struggling. Um, and so at the same time that you had kind of a social uh, crisis occurring, you had a lack of of office demand and a lack, candidly, of office presence in the in the CBD. And there's a lot of people who witness what happened in the Central Business District of Seattle and just couldn't fathom that that you know these issues were occurring and and it really, frankly, soured a lot of corporations and corporate users on downtown Seattle. And I think the result of that has been it has slowed um, probably more than any other market. It's slowed the return to work or um, in Seattle, and it's probably increased the migration of tenants leaving Seattle um, because of just the, the issues that they, you know, the concerns they have regarding the employee safety, um, the lack of, you know, storefronts being boarded up and some of those things. Now, um, as time has gone on, um, candidly, there's been a change, a favorable change relative, certainly from the uh, corporate office side of things. Um, people have started to, you know, kind of regain some belief in the in the benefits of Seattle, downtown Seattle, and you're and you're seeing um, a modest increase in return to work, and and so you're getting a daytime population that is, you know, the streets are starting to have people on them, and there's some of the retailers, the retailers have begun to reopen, you know, candidly, some of this, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth street. 7th Street, those are all fairly busy, active streets nowadays with, with lots of new buildings, um, for the, you know, with a lot of tenants. And so there definitely is a re reemergence of downtown Seattle. Um, rents, which had, interestingly, in the worst of times, rents themselves probably only decreased 10%, maybe 12%, but concessions went way up. And, and, and uh, that included the so lots of free rent, also very high tenant improvements because um, the now tenants were in a position, instead of having to subsidize some of the cost of the relocation and or uh, renovation of their space, they could put all of that on the landlord because demand was generally uh, modest and landlords couldn't afford to lose tenants. So capital investments went way up and, and tenants were able to renew leases um, at close to what they were paying previously, but got a lot more concessions. As we look today, um, I would say that that 10 to 12% decline in rents has uh, turned around and we're probably back to par on where rents were. And concessions are much, are way down from where the, the worst, the peak of time, so to speak, peak of COVID. Um, so concessions, while still higher than pre-COVID, are not anywhere near what they were um, simply because demand has come back in a, in a reasonable way. I would, if I had to measure demand relative to where we were pre-COVID, I would tell you it's about 50, 60% of probably net absorption that we were receiving, receiving before COVID. Um, so it's a story of a re-emerging office market that has definitely turned the worse and is improving. 
The good news was there was very little speculative new construction that hadn't already been leased. So there are very few buildings that are built and empty. Now, there are a number of buildings that are starting construction today with the idea in two years, three years, there will be a strong demand and those buildings will be leased when they are finished. Um, obviously, everyone's fingers are crossed that that will occur. And then finally, I'd also layer in the, the circumstance of sublease space. During the worst of times in COVID, you know, a lot of companies put a lot of space in the sublease market. And as we came out of that, as we're coming out of that, that was kind of the first space to be leased because it was offered at, at discounted values. And people, tenants who are willing to live with the existing condition of someone else's space, were able to get really uh, pretty strong, favorable economics. That's essentially gone at this point for the most part um, in any meaningful way. So again, much more equilibrium in the Seattle office market. Um, so before I jump to the east side, Derek, anything that yeah. any questions that I've generated, you know, that I've caused by my statements there? Yeah. Well, first off, great information, um, and uh, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on as it relates to the the Seattle market and people coming from outside the state um, moving here. Are you seeing? Yeah. Are you receiving calls from brokers? Anybody that have tenants from outside the area that are relocating or or looking to start businesses in Seattle? Yeah, the good news is, um, candidly, as bad as Seattle might have gotten, uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles got worse. And so um, we, we were still the best of the alternatives on the West Coast um, for many companies, and particularly in Northern California, which is where we, we draw a lot from because we're in software and technology here, as opposed to media and entertainment that's down in L.A., so if you, look at, if you look at home prices and you look at traffic and you look at all the issues and, and all the social issues that San Francisco Bay Area have been facing, um, we are still seeing pretty significant net in-migration um, into, into this greater Seattle area, um, which is actually a nice segue over to the east side because um, before I would have told you a year ago, or pre-COVID, I guess three years ago, that most of the uh, larger technology companies who were moving up from Silicon Valley and or, or adding significant offices in the Seattle area would try to go to Seattle first. And if they couldn't find sufficient space, they'd come to Bellevue. Obviously, Seattle being a much larger market, has much more retail, et cetera. But interestingly, if you flip that to where we are today, it's just the opposite. Those same quantity of companies are moving and looking to open larger facilities in the greater Seattle area, but they're starting with Bellevue first. And to the extent they can find an office space in Bellevue, they lease it. And then if they can't, they go into Seattle. And that really is can candidly a reflection of um, the quality of schools that have, you know, that have been found to be in Bellevue on the east side compared to Seattle. You know, remembering that the, tech, the technology tenant base that we predominantly have um, is not startup, very, very young, VC-backed. Uh, most of our technology companies are reasonably mature. And the result of that is, is that they have large portions of their workforce that are also reasonably mature, i.e. their age. So these are people are not 20-somethings typically. These are 30 and 40-somethings which means they typically have families and children and schools are very relevant to them. So that's a big driver that's been pushing people. 
The other issue is crime is very low on the east side compared to Seattle. So that stacks up well. And now you have enough critical mass of both large and mid-sized technology companies on the east side with large presences. So you can move here from the Bay Area as a company or open an office here and feel like you're kind of in the heart of of where you know all of the people in your industry are located. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, if you were a technology company coming to Bellevue, you were you were a little bit on your own, other than Microsoft, obviously, out in Redmond. So anyway, I think that that that's the positive is we are still seeing net in migration to answer your question. Yeah. And, and when you think of East Side, I mean it's kind of it seems like the net for East Side's gotten bigger too. You know, it used to be downtown core of Bellevue and then then a little bit out Northrop way and you look at the spring district. I mean, you look at some of the, the developments going on um, even all the way out to Issaquah and you get Factoria in some of these areas. I mean, when you see office and you see people talking about uh, building an office or, you know, b- putting a headquarters somewhere, are you hearing other names besides Bellevue? Are you, are, are, are they interested in Factoria or Issaquah or, you know, those types of areas? Yeah, it's a little bit of, you know, uh, build it and they will come, meaning the cities of Issaquah, Redmond, Bothell, Kenmore, you know, they all kind of clued in that if they change their zoning, essentially increase the density that they would allow in their cities for not only office, but also multifamily, um, they could really raise the the revenue, um, the tax revenue in their cities which would then also allow them to pay for a lot of infrastructure, whether it's light rail or other things that would be coming to this city. So, you know, you look at today and Redmond is Redmond beyond not, not just the Microsoft campus, but I mean, downtown Redmond or downtown Bothell or Kenmore or even downtown Issaquah. Those are micro hubs that are very, you know, very attractive to people. And there's a lot of density being developed in those areas, office and multifamily. So, you're right. Um, instead of just having one or two choices, Kirkland is another example. I mean, Kirkland, a good example in Kirkland is if you look it up along Central Avenue, heading up to Rose Hill on 85th there, that whole thing has been rezoned. And you're going to see millions of square feet of office space built over the next five to seven years up there, you know, that would never have been a consideration previously. So yeah. micro, micro hubs um, are really very popular. It also cuts down on the transit times because inevitably more people live closer to a micro hub than everybody trying to come to, to one location in downtown Bellevue. Um, so, yeah. um, but, but uh, you know, the other side of that is as you, as anyone who's trying to drive through downtown Bellevue nowadays can attest, you know, you have 6 million square feet of high rise cranes up today, building space, predominantly for Amazon. These were all pre-COVID commitments that Amazon made. And then you have another 3 million square feet of cranes soon to go up for speculative office developments in downtown Bellevue. So downtown Bellevue, which, you know, in the old days when you and I were kicking around, was a 6 million square, 7 million square foot submarket. Today, it's a 12 or 13 million square submarket. And it's going to be a 20 million square foot submarket in in another three years. So it's a it's a you know it's growing like mad and it will as a result you know create a much larger population of people in downtown Bellevue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and are you hearing of any type of 
amenity or anything that is non that would may not have been part of an office offering, you know, pre-COVID that now you're starting to hear when people are searching, they want an office that's, you know, more private or more open or access to amenities. I mean, what's kind of the, I guess, yeah. the high level yeah. uh, viewpoint of what they're looking for these days. You know, at the end of the day, as much as developers like myself try to be smart and, and, and innovative in what we do, the reality is all we're really doing is trying to, to address the demand of the corporate clients that are in our buildings. And what corporate America fairly universally, not completely universally, but pretty universally is saying right now is what they cannot duplicate in a home office environment is the collaboration um, and so when their premise is, when people are doing individual work, they can do it anywhere, including their home. When people need to be in a collaborative environment, they need to be in a collaborative environment. And therefore, the interior of office space needs to focus on collaboration areas as opposed to individual work areas. And the buildings that they go into need to focus on collaboration type spaces as opposed to individual type spaces. You know, you may remember for many years leading up to COVID, we were building projects and, and renovating projects that were essentially trying to give people individual privacy with the premise that, you know, you don't want to be around a lot of other people. You want to be able to decompress, de-stress, et cetera. Well, today, the idea is going to be for the long term is that, you know, in any given job, in any given company, by any given worker, some percentage of what they do is collaborative and some percentage is individual work, you know, work, so to speak. And the companies are going to bifurcate that and, and say the individual work can be done at your home and the collaboration needs to be done in the office. And so they need those offices to reflect that, that kind of an environment. Um, so that, that's how I would characterize yeah. what the future is going to look like. Yeah, totally makes sense. I mean, we recently moved into new spaces because Amazon bought the building we were in. Uh, in Bellevue, and they're going to, you know, tear that down and build something, you know, beautiful, I'm sure. And then that's what our group did was build out pods. So like, on the management services side, we have our own old pod. So we're all sitting in that same pod. So we can just all turn our chairs around, sit at the middle table and collaborate on an issue or, you know, an opportunity, and then turn back to our workspace and do our workspace. Um, and a lot of natural light coming in, right? It's all about natural light, more open, little airier, um, and then, uh, and then having access to other amenities. So, uh, before it had been all about privates, you know, how many privates do you have? Who, you know, everyone gets a private and, um, doesn't open up that, that collaboration. So I could totally see that. And I love it. You know, for me, I, I, I like that, uh, ability to have that collaboration. Um, well, and, 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 and I think, yeah, for a lot of people, it's even accentuated because let's say you're working from home. Let's say you happen to say that I'm going to work from home. Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, and those are going to be my individual work days. And what a lot of companies are doing are they're designating days. They're saying Tuesdays and Thursdays are collaboration days, meaning if you have a meeting for more, more than four people, you should schedule it on those days because everyone's going to come into the office on those days. Everyone's going to be there and available to have that kind of those kind of meetings and collaboration and then on the other days, those are kind of, quote unquote, individual work days. And you can do that in your pajamas from your home. So you can imagine someone who's been at home for two days in their pajamas, when they come in on that Wednesday for collaboration day, 
it's even more exciting to them. It's, you know, because yeah. they, they have been starved for two or three days from being able to, to be, to have that. So um, it's a fascinating, yeah, it's a fascinating. Uh, and I guess the question that that leads us to is, well, if, if the average worker is going to only physically be in the office 50 or 60% of the week, um, how much office space do you need? Right. And, yeah. and I think that there's a lot of data starting to, to, you know, kind of come out and this is still very much uh, uh, real time, but, you know, I think generally the belief is, is that total demand for office space will shrink 10, 15% across, you know, across the country, um, which is obviously millions of square feet of, of space. And then that as an investor or developer um, makes you start to wonder, well, there's going to be winners and losers. In other words, the buildings that are the best buildings that have the best features and are most aligned with what companies want going forward, they're probably they're going to probably see an increase in demand. And the buildings that are the opposite of that, they're going to probably see an exponential decrease in demand. So it's not going to be everyone gets 10% across the top taken off. It's going to be some winners that, that make a they're very successful because of this, and some losers that are kind of exponentially. Um, losers in this in this instance, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And and when you think about opportunistic opportunities here in the core, you know, Puget Sound area, you know, for the for the the average or you know investor versus you know you know versus the large scale investors that are are doing projects. I mean, where do you are, are there any pockets? Are there anywhere areas where you see there's going to be a need for? Um, or investment opportunities, I guess I should say. Is it you know North Sound, South Sound, East, downtown? I mean, yeah. I'm getting I'm getting a little bullish on Seattle just because I love Seattle. I hate to see what happened to it, but it's such a beautiful city that you gotta you have to believe that over time here we're gonna get back to having the beauty that it has. And uh, you know, hopefully with you know some of the changes that have been made um within the city itself about what can be done and what can't be done. But um I mean, what what do you what are you hearing out there? What what what's kind of your thoughts on that? Well, so I think what you're touching on is interesting because um, so the the large scale and in, in active investors with you know unlimited amounts of capital, they're gonna they're gonna take any any and all sites that that are just you know big and large and obvious. So uh, and and that's fine because that's not what the small investor you know could do anyway and doesn't want to do. Um, if I'm the average, typical small investor, small to mid-sized investor, um, uh, what I'm doing is I'm I'm huddling around what I call micro markets or or small cluster markets. I mean, let me give you an example. Like the university district is a good example. So the university district went through an upzone, and it's a very narrow and defined geography where this upzones occurred. And the result of that is inside the upzone, land prices shot up. Lots of development is going on, both multifamily, retail, and. But if you're one block off of that, you're, you 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 values really candidly probably are gone down in value, and that's where I think there's opportunity because if there's the, if you have a concentration, a much larger concentration in a small geographic area than has ever been there before. Inevitably, that will bleed out northwest, east, south. And I would love to own product one to two, three blocks off of the upzone line, so to speak. 
I think um, Northgate's another great example. Linwood is an interesting example. They just went through an up zone. So if it was me, I would go all around this area and I would look for the, the geography of where those up zones are occurring. And I'd be buying one to three blocks walkable off of those. And I think you could be in a real, in, in all product types, candidly. And I think you could be in a really, I'd be a really smart play for the long term. Yeah, uh, totally makes sense uh, in regards to the investment side because if when opportunity zones came out, you know the ones who made well on opportunity zones were the ones that already had the land that got put into an opportunity zone. Right. Um, you the go guy to buy bought, the guy who's buying into the opportunity zone was paying a fortune to be buying into that, right? Because exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. they bought they bought the story, and yeah, exactly. and so to your point, it's like and I had a piece of property in Issaquah that was right outside the lift on the first go around ten years ago. But then it became part of the next lift that was seven years later. So it went from being a fourplex to, you know, now you can build yeah. 24 to 30 units. Um, no question. Yes, so yeah. Make a path of progress play, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yep. Path of progress close in. Um, yeah, That makes sense. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to take up all your time here, Bill, but, I, you know, I, I, I just value your input. I know that you're very methodical about when you look at something. And when it was brought up to me, I said, hey, we should get some updates on what's going on in office. I, I instantly thought of you because uh, uh, I've seen what you've done. Um, and, and I love talking to you about it because you, you, you totally look at it from the end user's perspective more so than just the return. Um, and, uh, and I think that's why your projects have have done well. I mean, uh, you, you looked at, you looked to serve a purpose versus just try to serve a, a balance sheet. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's nice of you to say, and it, it, but you know, candidly, it's probably the safest way to invest as well as just to, to feel, you know, it sounds like an old cliche, but find a need and fill a need. Right. And, uh, yeah. and so we try to keep our ego out of it and we try to just focus on whatever it is that is going to help facilitate and benefit the user at the end of the day. And, uh, and any kind of disruption in the market like we have today should be ripe for opportunities for people like us to, to find ways to better fill the need than maybe someone else is. So that's what that's what we're spending our time doing. Okay. Well, Bill, I appreciate it again. And uh, for everybody on the, the podcast listening, uh, if you get a chance, like I said before, to uh, rent out of one of Bill's buildings, you'll be very happy you did because I know uh, we were there for... Uh, quite a while and uh, and really enjoyed uh, you know Bill and his team um, and they made our lives really easy with a lot of stuff. So um, not to mention the coffee bar was great. The coffee machine <laughs> had to be the best thing we had over there, Bill. When you guys I put know. that in, I know there and I know there were some headaches with it, but man, all the tenants <laughs> loved it. <laughs> it cost us a fortune, but it was uh, it was really good. So thank you. Well, thanks again, Derek. Great to talk to you, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you should have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me directly at Derek at DokeMail.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.